Okay, it's a blessing to uh, commune with you tonight to share this time of remembrance of Jesus Christ, of all the things that we need to remember as Christians. Is there a greater thing to remember? No, obviously not. It's Jesus and his death, his resurrection in our stead. Let's stand and sing nothing but the blood. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my part in this I see, nothing but the blood of Jesus. For thy cleansing this my plea, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the Oh. 
the blood of your son can do that father thank you so much that once was the mark on us that condemned us to death is no longer on us because of jesus christ our savior thank you for his sacrifice lord it was what we needed it paid it all in jesus name amen thank you let's be seated if you were here last week we tried to play a, a video and it didn't work out so well we're going to play that tonight. It's just a, a reminder of we may fail in body and even in mind, and yet uh, the Spirit of God can work in that failing body and mind in a very precious way. I want you to see this video. Maybe. Mm -hmm. One day, one day that will be. You stop and think about it, you can't imagine it. Sing for Val so I can send her a video of the song you just sang. What a day that will be. When my Jesus I shall see, when I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace, no more tears, no more sorrows on the way, what a day, what a day that will be. Always we have that hope in Christ, don't we? What a day that will be. Direct your attention to Acts chapter 2 this evening. We know that Christ was crucified on the day of Passover. He was observing the Passover supper 
with his disciples when he instituted what we now call the Lord's Supper or our communion service as he represented the new covenant. As he was crucified on that day of Passover, we recognize that he was resurrected on the Feast of First Fruits, as he was indeed the first fruits of resurrection. After the resurrection, he was on earth for 40 days. After 40 days, appearing to the disciples on several occasions, he then ascended back to heaven. Prior to his ascension back to heaven, he said to the disciples, you need to stay right here in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power and you'll be witnesses for me. In essence, he's reminding them, don't even try to be a witness for me without the power of the Holy Spirit, which of course is a great reminder for us. And so 40 days after his resurrection, he ascends back to heaven, tells the disciples to stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. So they wait. One day, two days, three days, a week, ten days. Now on that tenth day, which was the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And of course we read that in Acts chapter 2 and verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the Holy Spirit did come upon them and they begin to speak in tongues. And we know from this context that the speaking in tongues was, was simply other languages. And the list of languages that was spoken by the disciples is given to us here. It's 16 different languages, at least, that uh, they spoke through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And as these people from these 16 different languages uh, languages heard the disciples speaking in their language, it says in verse 12 that they were amazed and perplexed. I can imagine. How were these Galileans, most of them, speaking their language? They were confused, they were perplexed, they were amazed, but, verse 15, others mocked. These men are full of new wine. Others mocked. They claimed that these Men, these disciples were drunk. You know, there's the same reaction today to the gospel and to the truth. Some are maybe amazed, and some are just perplexed and wonder and kind of doubtful, and then others simply mock. And that was the reaction of the, the crowd there on the day of Pentecost. But it's at this time that Peter stands before that crowd and he preaches this sermon on the day of Pentecost. And, and we just want to look at that sermon this evening. Obviously not in great detail, but to just go down through that sermon that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost because he spoke of the death, burial, resurrection, and exaltation of Christ. And we gather around this table tonight to remember that death, burial, and resurrection. Let's bow in prayer. Father, as we gather around this table, we are to do so in remembrance of our Savior, how indeed He gave Himself for us, for the remission of sins and for the salvation that we have through faith in Him. And I pray, Father, that we would examine our own hearts as we partake of these elements tonight. 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So in verse 14, Peter does stand up with the eleven, that is, the other disciples, lifted up his voice and said unto them, You men of Judea, and all you that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words, for these are not drunk, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. Peter stands up and he takes the lead, which again kind of reminds us of the last two Sunday mornings. Christ said, when you were converted, Peter, strengthen the brethren. Peter, feed my lambs, shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep. So Peter begins to fulfill that responsibility that Christ has given to him. And he takes the lead here on the day of Pentecost. And he, he says, these are not drunk men. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning, he says. <laughs> They're not drunk. And then he begins in verse 16 to, to quote from the prophet Joel. But this is that which was spoken through the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and notable day of the Lord God. And it, came, and it shall come to pass that whoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's all quoting from Joel chapter 2. Notice what he does say here and what he does not say. He does not say that what they were seeing was fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. He doesn't say that. In essence, what he's saying is, what you are seeing is like what Joel talked about. It's not fulfillment because as you read down through the day of Pentecost here, much of what Peter quoted from Joel was not fulfilled. You know, it talks about uh, uh, wonders in heaven and signs in earth, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, the sun turned into darkness, the moon into blood. That, that didn't happen on the day of Pentecost. So he's not saying that this prophecy of Joel was being fulfilled on this day of Pentecost. He's simply saying what you're seeing is like what Joel talked about, specifically as it relates to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And Joel prophesied that the Spirit would be poured out. And that's what you're seeing now is what Peter's saying. Um, Joel is talking about what will yet be future for us. In the tribulation period, you read the book of Revelation, it talks about some of these signs in heaven and earth, blood, and the sun turning to darkness, the moon turning to blood. You can read that in the book of Revelation during the tribulation, and that's what Joel's talking about. At that time then, as, as the nation of Israel does turn back to their God, uh, he's going to pour out a spirit upon the nation of Israel. And they will prophesy, and they will dream dreams, and, and, and then Christ will indeed come, and he'll establish his kingdom and, and enter into the millennial kingdom. That's what Joel's talking about, and we're not going to take the time to go back to Joel 2, but go back there, and you can see that that is what he's talking about. He's talking about the restoration of Israel and these things happening at that time, yet future for us. But Peter simply says, this is like what Joel talked about, the pouring out of his spirit. That's what you're seeing. And so then as he, he explains what's happening, that they're simply being filled with the Spirit, 
Then he goes into really his, his sermon. And he says in verse 22, You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know him, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Just think for a moment the courage that that took for Peter to say just those two verses. Jesus of Nazareth was approved of God. God attested to who he was. He was indeed the Messiah. And he proved that he was the Messiah by the miracles which he performed. And God the Father gave him the ability to do those miracles, putting his stamp of approval on him as indeed the Messiah. The Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah would do these miracles, would heal the sick, would cause the lame to walk, would cause the blind to see, would, uh, to, to heal the dead, or, or to raise the dead. Jesus of Nazareth did those miracles, proving that he was indeed approved of God as the Messiah. He was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. God, before the foundation of the world, predetermined that this is how he was going to save man. He predetermined that it was going to be through the sacrifice of his son, the Messiah, that man would be saved. That was God's plan. He predetermined it. It was de the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. It was his will. And yet... Though it was determined by God before the foundations of the world, and though it was His will, it was still wicked hands that crucified Him. It was still the evil and godlessness of man that brought it about. And it was still man who was responsible for their wickedness and for their evil. It's an amazing verse, really. It's a verse that speaks to the sovereignty of God. It was His determinate counsel and foreknowledge. It was His will. But man was still responsible. God's sovereignty, human responsibility. We don't fully understand that always, as we've said many times, but that's what we see in this verse. God was in control, and it was His plan. This is how He's going to save man. But it was still wicked, godless men who crucified Him. And Peter, encouraged, stands before that crowd responsible for the crucifixion and says, it was your wicked hands that did it. You crucified the Messiah whom God approved and whom God attested to through the miracles as the Messiah. But then we come to verse 24, and we really get to the, the, the main part of of the message, the sermon. The main part of, of Peter's message here is not so much the crucifixion, it's the resurrection. Verses 24 down through verse 32, he, he's talking about the resurrection. Why does Peter spend so much time on the resurrection? Because Christ himself said that my resurrection is going to be the sign that proves who I am. Remember on several occasions, especially the Pharisees would say to Jesus, show us a sign. Prove that you are who you say you are. And we've often said, you know, what more did they want? 
as verse 22 says, he did the miracles, he healed the sick, he caused the lame to walk, he caused the blind to see, he raised the dead. What more did they want? So finally Jesus said to him, okay, here's the sign. I will be killed and in three days I'll raise again. If I don't raise again, in essence what he's saying, if I don't raise again, I'm a phony, I'm a fraud. You, can, you don't have to believe a thing I've said. But if I do raise again, then I am exactly who I say I am. And so Peter spends most of his time talking about the resurrection to prove that this Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the Messiah proven by his resurrection. So beginning with verse 25, verse 24, excuse me, whom God has raised, speaking of Jesus, whom God has raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. God raised this Jesus of Nazareth to prove indeed that he was the Messiah. And then in verse 25 and down through verse 28, he, he quotes from Psalm 16. So he first quotes from Joel, and now he's quoting from Psalm 16. It's a Psalm of David. Verse 25, for David speaks concerning him, that is concerning the Messiah. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also shall rest in hope, because you will not leave my soul in Hades, neither will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You shall make me full of joy with your countenance or with your presence. That's, again, a direct quote from Psalm 16. And then he says in verse 29, Men and brethren, Let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, he, seeing this before, spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, neither his flesh did see corruption. Peter says, David wrote that Psalm 16, but he was not talking about himself. He talked about his flesh not seeing corruption, but guess what? David is buried and his sepulcher is with us today and his flesh saw corruption. So David wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about the Messiah. He was prophesying about the Messiah. And he says there in verse 30 that that God had told David that, that one from his own loins, one from his... Um, descendants would indeed be the Messiah and would sit upon the throne. He'd raise up the Messiah to sit on the throne of David. That's in verse 30 that he says that, therefore being a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Messiah to sit on his throne. So David knew that the Messiah would come from his descendants. And he prophesies concerning that Messiah. And in that prophecy concerning the Messiah, he prophesied concerning, verse 31, the resurrection of the Messiah, that his soul was not left in Hades, neither his flesh did see corruption. Wasn't talking about himself. His flesh did see corruption. He was prophesying about the Messiah 
who would be raised from the dead and not see corruption. And so Peter makes it very clear from this Psalm 16 that it was about the Messiah and David was prophesying about the resurrection. Verse 32, this Jesus has God raised up whereof we are all witnesses. He says this Messiah that David prophesied would be raised again is none other than Jesus of Nazareth. Go back up there to verse 25 for just a moment. David speaking concerning him, that is concerning the Messiah. I foresaw the Lord always before my face. That's talking about the Messiah. The Messiah saw the Lord always before his face. Just speaking of the truth that that Christ kept the Father before him at all times. He was focused on the Father. It says, my food is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. That was his focus, the will of the Father. In John chapter 5, he makes this statement, I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Several occasions, Jesus emphasized that it was the will of the Father that he was here to perform. That was his focus. And so he says, I, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. His focus was always on the Father. For he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Christ recognized, and speaking here of being on the right hand, is, is the, the place of protection. Again, just to, to see the practicality of that, a soldier would have his shield in his left hand, and if he had a bodyguard, the bodyguard would be on his right hand for protection. The shield would protect his left, but the bodyguard would be on the right. And so he's, the Father is on my right hand for protection. And Christ had that confidence in the Father. And that confidence then caused his heart to rejoice, and my tongue was glad. He had confidence in the protection of the Father, and it caused him to rejoice in that confidence. But then he says, Moreover, my flesh also shall rest in hope, because you will not leave my soul in Hades, neither will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Christ was able to go to the cross with the hope of resurrection. He knew the Father would raise him up. And he says, My flesh shall rest in hope. He could go to the cross. He could die for us. He could be buried in hope because the Father promised He'd not allow His flesh to see corruption. He knew the Father would raise Him up. You have made known to me the ways of life. You shall make me full of joy with your countenance or with your presence. You've made known to me the ways of life. I believe he's talking about you've made known to me. You're not going to allow me to see corruption. You'll raise me up and you'll allow me to know the ways of resurrected life. And resurrected life for Christ was seated at the Father's right hand in the Father's presence. And he says, uh, you'll make me full of joy with your presence. That's what Christ had to look forward to. And we read in Hebrews that indeed... He endured the cross, despising the shame, with the hope of being in the presence of the Father. That's all from Psalm 16, a psalm of David that 
No doubt most in this crowd just thought David was talking about himself, and Peter made it clear he's not talking about himself. He's talking about the Messiah. So again in verse 32, this Jesus of Nazareth, God raised up whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, verse 33, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has shed forth this which you now see and hear. He now speaks of exaltation, that Christ indeed was exalted. He's now seated at the Father's right hand. And as he's seated at the Father's right hand, he has sent forth the Spirit. And that's what you're seeing. That's what you're hearing. Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, has been raised from the dead, prophesied by none other than David, and he's now exalted and seated at the Father's right hand, and he has now sent forth the Spirit. And that's what you're seeing. And then he speaks of that exaltation again, quoting from David. Psalm 110 now in verse 34. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he said himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit on my right hand until I make your foes, your foes, your footstool. This is uh, David prophesied about this exaltation as well. The Lord said unto my Lord. Notice the word Lord there. The first Lord is all capital letters. It's Yahweh. Yahweh said to my Lord, the Messiah, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Again, Peter emphasizes, David's not talking about himself. David hasn't been exalted to heaven. He hasn't ascended to heaven. He's talking about the Messiah. This Messiah who is Jesus of Nazareth. He's been exalted. He's sitting at the Father's right hand. Verse 36, like any good preacher, he draws it to a conclusion. Therefore, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made that same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Again, just to... Think about the courage that Peter was displaying here. The Messiah, the one who has been raised from the dead, prophesied by David. The Lord, the one who is going to reign upon the throne of David. He's now exalted and seated, seated at the Father's right hand. And you crucified him. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. I can only imagine. They were stabbed in their heart would be another translation there. They felt the guilt of what they had done. They felt the guilt of what Peter was accusing them of. And as they were stabbed in their heart, their conscience filled with guilt, We've crucified the Messiah. We have crucified the, 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 the one who's going to sit upon the throne of David. And they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Again, just imagine the, the guilt that they were feeling at that time. Peter had just proven from the Old Testament 
that they had crucified the Messiah. What greater sin could possibly be committed? And they were feeling that guilt and they were stabbed in their conscience and in their heart from that guilt. They'd crucified the Messiah. Is, is there any correction to this? Is there anything we can do to make this right? What shall we do? The question here is much broader than simply what shall we do to be saved. Remember that was the question in, in Acts chapter 16 of the Philippian jailer. Philippian jailer said, to, you know, asking Paul and, and Silas, what shall we do to be saved? And, and Paul responded, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. It's just a, a, a very simple, straightforward answer. Faith is what saves you. But there's more involved here. They're not asking simply, what shall we do to be saved? They're asking, what do we do? We've crucified the Messiah. How can we make this right? How can we correct this? The first word out of Peter's mind is, or out of Peter's mouth is repent. Repent. That's what God wants from you. You're feeling the, the guilt of what you've done, the, the guilt of your wicked hands that crucified the Messiah, the, the guilt of your sin. You need to repent. Repentance in Scripture can never be separated from faith. And so as he emphasizes this repentance, of course, there's, there's faith involved. And then he says, and be baptized. Uh, manifest your faith and your repentance through baptism. Now, as you read this, and many have misinterpreted verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Sounds like repent and be baptized for the remission of sins in order to, to be forgiven of your sins. And, and so some have interpreted that as you can't be forgiven of your sins until you're baptized. That's not what Peter's saying here. Again, remember, the, the question is much broader than simply what must we do to be saved. Simple answer to that is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. But this is broader. What, what do we do? And Peter tells them much broader than simply what to do to be saved. He says you need to repent and, and, and involved with that repentance is faith. And, and then you need to manifest that faith and that repentance through baptism for the remission of sins. The Greek word for that's translated here is much like our English word for you. It can be used in, in different ways. You can use the word for to mean in order to receive you know, I, I'll, I'll go to the store for a loaf of bread. I'm going to go to the store to get a loaf of bread. Was that what he's saying here? Be baptized in order to get forgiveness? No. We can also use the word for in the sense of because of. Um, I'm in jail for stealing. That doesn't mean I'm in jail to get stealing. No, it means I'm in jail because of stealing. That's how he's using the word for here, repent. And, and with that repentance, there's faith and manifest that faith through baptism because of the forgiveness of sins. The baptism, the baptism doesn't get you the forgiveness, but the baptism is because you have been forgiven. And that baptism shows your repentance and your faith and the forgiveness that you have received 
It's a very broad question. What must we do? And Peter gives a very broad answer. And he says, as you are, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That which you've seen, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit that Joel talked about, that that this is an example of what Joel talked about. It's not fulfillment, but it's an example. You can receive the Holy Spirit. For the promise is unto you. That is, the promise of the Spirit is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked crooked generation. And so Peter concludes his message by giving that invitation, if you will. This is open to all. You too can be saved and you can receive the Holy Spirit. In verse 41, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people recognized their need of salvation and recognized their need of repentance and recognized that to show forth that faith, they were baptized because of that forgiveness of sins. And so we have this, this message emphasizing in verse 22 the life of Christ through his miracles, he performed miracles. The death of Christ in verse 23, verses 24 down through verse 32 is the resurrection of Christ. Verses 33 down through verse 36 is the exaltation of Christ. We're really here around this table this evening to remember his life, his death, his resurrection, and his exaltation. The very things that Peter preached on that day of Pentecost is what we remember as we gather around this table tonight. Thankful for the forgiveness of sins through faith in the Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth, by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, he was crucified, but it was wicked hands that did it. But it was God's plan for our salvation. And we rejoice in that plan tonight as we partake of these elements, remembering His broken body and shed blood in our behalf for the forgiveness of sins. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we're so thankful for the record of that sermon preached on that day of Pentecost. Just the truths of your word, going all the way back to the Old Testament, prophesying of of Christ's resurrection, prophesying of his exaltation. And Father, we gather around this table now to remember that death, burial, and resurrection and, and exaltation of Christ, thanking you for the forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. Glenn and Landon will sing for us at this time, and as we do, let's continue to remember the Savior's sacrifice in our behalf and to begin to examine our own hearts before we partake of the elements.
Certainly took a major.